Let's bow together in prayer. Father, you're gracious to invite us into your throne room. As Hebrew tells us, we could draw near to the throne of grace, and there we can find grace and mercy at just the right time. We thank you that you ask us to come to hear from you, to hear your word. And we thank you that when we listen, you work in our hearts and you transform us and you make us move from one degree of glory to another. And we pray that you would do that this morning. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, I've done several weddings, quite a few. They've slowed down at NBC since we've gotten older. Maybe with young people coming along, maybe they'll pick up again. But uh, mostly when it comes to weddings, my day is over. And now I look back on it and I think, mm, I wish I'd done some things differently. On my uh, hard drive, there are all the vows that all the marriages I did that the people wrote. I edited all those vows. And uh, some of them, you know, when they first came were a little squirrely. Some of them very syrupy. Most of them were biblical. Uh, but as I look back, I, I think I think the church has had some wisdom, and the church has had set vows. That is, when people get married, they vow to the same thing. Well, so did our young people. They, they vowed to pretty much the same thing, maybe in more detail. I wonder when the last time is you looked at your marriage vows. I wonder how well you think you're doing on keeping them. Some of the ones in my computer, they're so detailed, I wondered how you could keep them. <laughs> but even just with broad statements, I promise to love you like Christ loved the church. Now, that one gets violated every day by every man. Wouldn't you say? Hence, the marriage covenant needs renewal. Just as our covenant with God needs renewal week by week because we violated. Groom. I, groom, take thee, bride, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for fairer, for fouler, in sickness and in health, to love and to, to, love and to cherish Till death us depart, according to God's holy ordinance, and thereunto I plight my troth. I, bride, take thee, groom, to be my wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for pure, poorer in sickness and in health, to be bonny and buxom at bed and at board, to love and to cherish till death 
us depart according to God's holy ordinance. And thereunto I plight thee my troth. Whoa. No girl has accepted that one yet to say. Oh, give thanks. Oh, I'm reading the title, sorry. Oh, I'm trying to figure out what I wrote here. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. We were wandering and lost, and our Father brought us home to a safe dwelling place, to a feast of joy and laughter. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. That's a refrain from a song which we are hopefully going to sing next week that's taken from Psalm 107. And there are three reasons why I read it. First is this song comes from what David penned for 1 Chronicles 16 when the ark was brought into the tent in Zion. We've read it many times. Second, this rendition talks about what God is doing in 2 Chronicles. That is, bringing Israel to a safe place for a joy, for a feast of joy and gladness. When we learn the song next week, we'll discover it's a little peppy. Probably a lot of you already know it. But uh, I'm thinking to myself, you know, this really might help around our table because sometimes we get a little somber when in fact what God intends is that it be a celebration of joy and gladness. In fact, next week we're even going to clap our hands. Oh. I'll probably have a heart attack before next week. We come to the dedication of the temple. We've been looking at some features of it. Now in chapters 5 and 6, we come to the dedication. And in the dedication, of course, the ark is moved from Zion to Moriah. Both places are called Jerusalem. Moved from David's stronghold, Zion, to the Mount Moriah, where Isaac was offered by Abraham as an ascension. When you move anywhere in Israel to Moriah, you are ascending. Even if you're moving from a peak that is higher than Moriah, you're ascending. And so as the ark is brought in, you saw, as it was read to us, you heard what was read to us, the priest brought the ark no, they ascended with the ark because now the ark is going to ascend to its place. And in bringing it, it recalls 1 Chronicles chapters 15, well, actually starting 13 through 16, where David first brought the ark and it was on a cart. 
And the cart wobbled and the ark fell and Uzzah touched it and Uzzah died. David learned his lesson. Do things the way God tells you to do them. And so next, when he brought the ark, he brought it by people carrying it on poles. One man in front, one man behind, poles on their shoulders. And, of course, when Israel marched back in the wilderness, when the temple was, our tabernacle was torn down, they marched around. The ark was the highest thing in the march because God is lifted up. And when they marched, this ark was lifted up and it had a smoky cloud cover to it. And when we look at first, or 2 Corinthians 5 and 6, one of the emphases is on clouds, the cloud of God, the dark, thick cloud, translated different ways in different places. But it's a cloud you can feel. It's a cloud that's dark. It's a cloud in which God hides so you cannot see him. It's a cloud out of which God speaks so that you can hear him. So, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Verses 1 through 6 are about bringing the ark. And what, what Solomon does is he calls all the elders and the leaders and the heads of fathers' houses and he assembles them. And this word assemble, we're going to see, not today, but we'll see that it's a very important word. It's a word we'll see in this chapter and the next chapter. It's a word that comes, uh, well, you see it all over the Bible, but it's, it's concentrated in Solomon because he wrote the book of the Ecclesiastes and you read your translation, it might be, you might say, the, it might say the preacher, but what the word is, is the gatherer, the assembler. And so, as I told you before, and we're going to push this when we get to the end of this section, I think Ecclesiastes was written at the dedication of the temple. When all the people were assembled, as in this case, David assembled the leaders, the elders, and they were assembled to the feast in the seventh month. And so the dedication of the temple comes in the seventh month during a feast, and it is the Feast of Booths. The tabernacle, of course, was a tent. It was movable. The temple is a house. You can't pick it up and move it. And on the Feast of Booths, to remind the children of Israel that they had been delivered from the land of Egypt and marched with a tent all around the wilderness, once a year, Usually, I mean, in our calendar, it would be in October. For seven days plus one more, an eighth day, they would dwell in booths. And remember, oh yeah, we're actually a cloud people because the word booth comes from the word cloud. And cloud comes because the people wear garments that have four wings to symbolize the fact that they're up in the air people. They're people who are like angels who fly through the heaven firmament because Israel is over the earth. They're in charge. They're the center. But now there's going to be a temple. And this temple is dedicated. The word dedicated, when you read it in your Bible, is the word to make holy to set apart, to sanctify. They're going to dedicate 
the temple. And they're going to do it in the Feast of Weeks. I mean, excuse me, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. The important thing of that is that the Feast of Tabernacles is a feast for the harvest of the nations. They sacrifice, we talked about it a few days, a few weeks back. They, they sacrificed 70 bulls over seven days, starting with 13, working their way down to seven, along with many other lambs and so forth. But that goes back to the nation of tables in Genesis chapter 10. And when you take a bull and you lay your hand on it, you're identifying with it. And then you slit its throat and all this blood comes spilling out and they catch it in basins and they splash, the priest splash that blood on the altar and that makes a satisfaction with God and a pathway up to God from the bronze altar to the altar of incense up to the Ark of the Covenant. And that pathway goes by way of smoke because then you cut this animal all, all up after you skin it and you lay it on top of the fire that has wood on top of it. Then you put it there. Then you put the, ascent, I mean the, the, the tribute offering on top of that and so forth. And it all goes up in smoke and it works its way up to God. Now, what does that mean? It means that when you do that, you are ascending to God in a transformed way, a transfigured way. You're going up to God by a substitute, but you make your way into the holy room via smoke. But this is done at the Feast of Tabernacles as a dedication, but it's representing Gentiles. So then you discover why this becomes a house for all the nations and a house of prayer for all people. God doesn't actually live there because heaven and earth cannot contain him, but it's a house for my name. His name is put there. And so you work your way around the world and there's a house for Dagon and there's a house for Zeus and so forth. But this house, this is the house of Yahweh. His name is upon it. And so they're moving the Ark of the Covenant, which remember is this rectangular box, a box kind of like that, close to the same size. But inside, it's all covered with gold. And on top, it has a keferet, a covering. That's a thick covering of pure gold. And on each end of the pure gold is a cherubim popping up that's attached to it. So they're going to move that. But of course, it has to be covered. You can't see it. So it's covered, and they start moving. And they offer so many sacrifices that they cannot be numbered, just as for every six steps coming from Gibeon to Zion, there was a sacrifice made. Six more steps, another sacrifice. Now, we're not told about the steps and all. We're just told this whole pathway is a pathway of sacrifice. 
And the word sacrifice is a word for peace offerings. But in order to have a peace offering, you have to have an ascension offering with it. So we're having ascensions and peace offerings, which means all along the route, there is this smoke through which this Ark of the Covenant is traveling on its way to a fixed house that is called by Yahweh's name, the house of Yahweh, a house for my name, Yahweh says. That's what they're doing. So I just want you to think for a minute. All these sacrifices are made. And that, that, when we get to chapter 7, we'll realize that in the dedication, there are even more that are made. This is just the beginning. This is the trail until we get to the temple. And then, then there are going to be even more. So much more that, that Solomon has to dedicate the court so that all these sacrifices, the altar's not big enough to make them all. So as the ark comes, blood is shed for one reason only. Why is blood shed? Well, for death. And why do animals die? They die because people sin. And you shed the blood because it is a substitute for sinners. This gives us a crazy measure of the blood of Christ, which in 1 Peter, it's called costly blood valuable blood. Well, of course, Christ's body is like our body. It only contains so much blood, and it flowed out as he hung on the cross and the spear was stuck in his side. So the idea of costly, valuable, has nothing to do with the quantity, and the quantity has nothing to do with how many people will be saved by it, but the word valuable has to do with the life that is shed when that blood drains out. And of course, it's the life of the God-man. And here in the Old Testament, you've got to step back and you've got to think, my goodness, if I lived in the Old Testament, what would I do with this pathway of blood all the way up to the temple? And then just this massive amounts of blood. Here's what you do. You say to yourself, self, I'm not very good, am I? All that blood is shed that I might come into a distant, in the Old Testament, a distant contact with the living God. Nevertheless, it's a time of celebration. The Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple and the priests set it in its place. But now in its place, whoa, now in its place something different is going to happen than ever happened before. Because as we saw last week, there's a cherubim over here and a cherubim over, over here. And this ark's going to become and set right under the touching wings of the cherubim. So now there are four cherubim overshadowing the ark. And above the ark is where God is enthroned. The word 
in chapters 5 and 6 is the word to dwell. There are different words to dwell, but this word is talking about God's enthronement, where He sits, but He sits in a cloud over the cherubim wings and His feet, if you will, come down and they rest on the kephoret, on the covering of the ark. So they bring it in, and they settled it in its place, and we're told about these two cherubim. And we're told that these two cherubim, they cover, their wings cover the ark, and not only do they cover the ark, they cover the poles. And the poles are long enough so that when you had it in the tabernacle, the poles which were never taken off the ark, they were taken off the other pieces of furniture, but not off the Ark of the Covenant. Because the Ark of the Covenant is where God's name is enthroned. And in the wilderness, he's ready to go at any moment. Pick up and move. So the poles were always there. Here in the, in the temple, the Ark's not going to move anymore. The only time it's going to be moved is if it's taken away in captivity, but there it sits, and the poles are attached. But now the room has grown, oh, it used to be 10 cubits by 10 cubits, now it's 20 cubits by 20 cubits, and still these poles are long enough that if you take it from the back all the way to the front, it just touches up against the walls in the inner sanctuary, remember? The Deborah, the Word. It's in the Word. And if you open the doors, because now you have doors plus a curtain, if you open the doors, you could see just the end of that pole. Well, when the doors are closed, you can't see it. But nevertheless, the chronicler wants us to know those poles are still there. But now they mean something different. This, this is a resting place for God. It's never going to move again. The doors are shut on the poles. God is here to stay. Then we're told that in this ark, the only thing in the ark is the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the two stones, that came from what happened at Mount Horeb, at Mount Sinai. And you recall at Mount Sinai, what happened is the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they made their way to Mount Sinai, and then they met with God. And they met around this mountain that had a perimeter that you cannot, don't touch the perimeter, or you die instantly. Just like you, you, can't, you can't come in past the border into the tabernacle, temple, or you die. You're not holy enough. But they looked up on this mountain. What they saw at the top of the mountain was a cloud. It was at the same time like a burning fire, yet it was smoky and dark. And Moses would ascend that mountain. He ascended that mountain in the first week several times. And he would disappear into the cloud. Moses went into the cloud. Nobody else went into the cloud. And we're told in Exodus 
and in Deuteronomy and in Numbers that in that cloud is where God dwells. In from that cloud, God speaks. And so that cloud would sometimes descend from the mountain and come down and stand at the doorway to the tabernacle and God would speak so that Aaron and Moses could hear him and all the people could see that cloud but it's it's darkness you can't it's hiding God you can't see him they saw that at the top of the mountain and Moses went up into the mountain and talked with God and he came down and talked with the people got them ready and they met at the base of the mountain with God, and God spoke to them from that cloud at the top of the mountain audibly, and he gave them ten debar, ten words. We know them as the Ten Commandments. Then Moses came back down and talked to the people, and he went back up, and God gave him chapters 21, 22, and 23 of Exodus, which are called in your translation ordinances. So you have the words and the ordinances. Uh, I don't like the translation ordinance. So you have the words and the judgments. So you have 10 words, thou shalt not kill. And then outside of that are the judgments. What happens when you violate the commandment? So Moses was up getting that and he came down and he read all of that to the people. And the people said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. Now, some people say, oh, they were arrogant to say that. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. They were supposed to say that. Just like the husband looking into those eyes of his wife-to-be says, I'm going to love you like Christ loves the church. Somebody should stand up and say, what? You'll never get that done which is true, they won't. But it is what you vow to. And so at Mount Sinai, a marriage was taking place. It was a marriage done through a representative because Moses represented his people. All of them were baptized in the cloud and in the sea into Moses. When Moses goes up into the mountain, into the cloud, he brings Israel with him. And God says, this is what I'll do for you. And Israel says, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses comes down. He gets some young men to make offerings ascensions and peace offerings because when you get married you're going to have a marriage supper of the lamb you're going to eat together it's done representatively nevertheless it's going to happen and moses gets up early in the morning and he builds an altar and he puts 12 pillars around that altar the 12 tribes of israel and he takes the blood of these vast numbers of sacrifices and he puts some in basins and half of it he sprinkles around the altar because you've 
splash it on the altar and the God up in the cloud is satisfied and a pathway is made for you to go up in smoke. And then Moses took the basins of blood and he sprinkled all the people. Hebrews chapter 9 says he sprinkled the book too. But Exodus says he sprinkled the people. Now, if you got two million people, how are you going to sprinkle them all? Because that's not what it means. You see, you got to use your brain, and sometimes you just have to get rid of the notion literal. Because literally what it means is he sprinkled the representatives of the people, and the representatives of the people were what? Oh, 12 pillars. One was for each tribe, and the blood was sprinkled on those 12 pillars. Now, my point is, though, that when this Ark of the Covenant, this same Ark of the Covenant was brought to Mount Moriah and entered the Solomonic Temple and was set down under the wings of the cherubim, the one thing that was in the Ark of the Covenant, the only thing in the Ark of the Covenant, were two tablets of stone written on both sides. One for the people, one for Yahweh. A covenant. Now, when you come then to Second Chronicles, the author tells us twice in the section we've read, Oh, there's only the covenant in it. This is obviously important. Why? Because when you come to 2 Chronicles, it is a renewal of the covenant. But now it's in the bride and groom's fixed house. It's a structure. God promised I'm going to take you to a resting place. And you're going, to de you're going to live there in security and safety. And until this point, there had not been a resting place for the people of Israel. Then God chose it through David. And now he's built his house in Jerusalem. And God comes to settle down in a resting place with his people, his bride. That's what this is about. So, when they said, all that the Lord has commanded we will do, well, that's a covenant. And when you came to Christ in faith and you said, yes, I trust Christ, that is what you were saying, unbeknownst to you maybe, all that Jesus commands I will do do. And we call that the New Covenant. And the New Covenant has some variation from the Old Covenant, but the commands do not differ. I will write my laws in their heart and I will place them on their mind. What laws? The Ten Commandments. All that the Lord commands I will do. Of course, there's a whole bunch of ordinances that go with it, or as I've called them, judgments. So when the church gathers, the church gathers as the bride of Christ.
the church gathers with a covenant made with Christ. And just as the elders of Israel marched halfway up the mountain representing the tribes of Israel, and they ate there and they looked up and they saw something like clear glass up there and they saw a figure above it and it was God eating with them in a marriage supper. Well, this time, not of the land, but of God. And Israel was joined to him. Now, we're bringing all these people that are gathered and we're carrying this ark into the temple. And on the way, ascensions are being offered all along the path, which means they're all burnt up. They ascend, but it's a picture of the people ascending. Where? Where? Oh, into the cloud. Sometimes we call that heaven. The cloud is a little more specific. And then the ark comes in and settles down, and all these offerings are made, sacrifices, which we'll read about next week. And then the people eat. They eat the peace offering. So God's inside the temple by name, in a cloud above the cherubim, and a peace offering is made. Thousands of peace offerings are made, and part of it goes to the priest, and part of it goes to the people, and part of it, the insides, are put on the altar, and they ascend to the God in the cloud above the cherubim in the temple. And God and man at table are sat down. Now, in conjunction with this whole process of bringing the ark and then getting it to the temple, we have all the divisions of the priests and the musicians. You remember back in 1 Chronicles, they're divided up into 24 groups. But now all of them have dedicated themselves, that is, sanctified themselves, so they can go into the temple precincts. And there would be thousands of them, so they can't all fit, but they're there. And the musicians are there, the musicians who have uh, harps and lyres and cymbals, and the priests are there who are blowing trumpets, and the singers are there the singers of the three different groups of singers, and they're singing, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for his loving kindness endures forever. Coming right out of 1 Chronicles chapter 16, and then found in Psalm 106, Psalm 107, heading right at the beginning, Psalm 118, Psalm 136, found in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 11. It is what David Indeed, he's good. Give thanks to Yahweh. His loving kindness endures forever. What's so important about that? The thing that's important is God is married to a fickle wife who has to come up to the temple and give sacrifices 
because she violated the covenant. But God's loving kindness, his faithfulness to his covenant always endures. And he never has to sacrifice anything because he never violates it. That's the same for you and me, isn't it? Every Sunday we come, we have a prayer of confession. Because as the bride of Christ, when we come to meet with the Lamb, well, all those vows we made to God and all those vows we made to our spouse, we violated some of them, many of them, during the week. And remember, any sin against anybody is a sin against God. Against thee only have I sinned and done this wickedness so that you are justified. You're right when you judge God. This Israel understands. And so there's enthusiasm with the harp and the lyre and the cymbals and the trumpets. Trumpets on one side, the instruments on the other, and the choir singing, Oh, give thanks to Yahweh for his loving kindness endures forever. The word loving kindness is, is this word that's hard to translate. It's related to the covenant, the covenant that is written down, and it's talking about God being faithful to the covenant. But of course, God's faithfulness is not grit your teeth, I'll do it kind of faithfulness. God's faithfulness is because he really does love his people, so he's faithful and loving. There are a lot of people who stay in a marriage and try to keep their vows, but they could care less about their spouse. That's not loving kindness. That's not loyalty to a covenant. You see, Israel understands a whole lot more than we may think. So they sing, and they give thanks to God. Indeed, he is good, and his loving kindness is, uh, his loving kindness is everlasting, or endures forever. Then the house of Yahweh, there at the end of chapter 5, was filled with, with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of Yahweh filled the house of God. So with all this thanksgiving, God moves in. Remember, Psalm 22 says, God is enthroned on the praises of Israel. And on these praises, he moves in and he takes up residence with his name. And when God moves in, he lives in a cloud. And this cloud is thick, thick cloud, translated thick, sometimes translated dark. And when you get into the inner sanctuary, the debar, the word, when you get in there, there's no windows. It's dark in there because God is hidden, inaccessible. 
through our eyes. Except one thing. God came down in the person of Christ and he tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The law came by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace in the place of grace. Under the Old Testament, there was grace. All of Israel was chosen to be part of God's family. That's gracious. Most of the rest of the world wasn't chosen. But when you come into the New Testament, that grace is replaced with another grace. Because now this temple really is going to grow into a house for all the nations. And people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation and people are going to come into this expanded greater house. It's the house you see at the end of Revelation. But now it's a city. But don't be surprised that we're picking up on the image of a cloud because the city floats down out of heaven over a mountain. Where do you see clouds? Well, you start going up the mountain, you see the clouds, and pretty soon you pass above them. See, cloud language is quite impressive, and you've got to get rid of your literal thinking because literally... Clouds in the New Testament mean something different than you've been thinking of. And so when you come to the book of Matthew and you come to chapter 17 and Jesus has been just talking about his kingdom coming and some of you will be alive to see it. Some will have died. And then James and John and Peter are taken up into a very high mountain. And Jesus is transfigured in their sight so that his face becomes like the sunshine and his clothes are gleaming white. And Moses and Elijah appear with him and Peter doesn't know what to say, but he just says anyway, Lord, do you want me to make a tabernacle for you and for Elijah and for Moses? But what happens? A cloud comes down and overshadows a cloud. Huh. If you're up on that mountain now and you're outside that cloud, inaccessible are Elijah and Moses and Jesus and Peter and James and John. They're all in the cloud, you see. Because God came to give us a place to dwell. Where is it? It's in the cloud. And a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Which, of course, picks up Isaiah 42 and Psalm 2 where Psalm 2 says, the Lord said to me, thou art my son. Today I have begotten you. Listen to him. Well, 
that's not the only cloud, is it? There's so much more to say. Can we have another hour? When you get to the book of Acts, and Jesus' work is all done on the cross, and the disciples are standing on a mountain with him, and all of a sudden he begins to float up, and he is taken out of their sight into a cloud. Oh, some white fluffy thing? I think not. You have to think biblically. No, into the cloud. Glorify me with the glory I had with you. Oh, where did Jesus come from? The cloud. Now he's going back into the cloud. And that cloud is that ark, that chariot that has angels attending all around it. And it moves and you can't see it and I can't see it. But my guess is our brothers and sisters that have gone on before us, like Kelsey, she's in the cloud. Now, that sounds a little exciting, doesn't it? To be in the cloud that flies and controls what happens. Ah, I'd like to be in that cloud. That's what they saw. And then there are two angels, kind of like, whoops, there's this big angel here and there's this big angel there, taking us right back to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. And before, with these added angels, and they stand there and say, whoa, what are you guys gazing at? This Jesus whom you saw ascend will come again in the same way. Well, now, how is he going to come? How is he going to come? There's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The comfort passage when someone dies to remind us this is not the end. Some people will be alive when Jesus returns, living in their physical body. Most Christians will be dead when Jesus returns and their body will have rotted in the ground. But the dead in Christ will rise first in new bodies, just like Jesus did. And then we who are alive and remain until the end will be caught up together with them in the cloud. What's the cloud? Oh, I think we know what the cloud is if we know how to deal with literature. It's one city that comes down from heaven into which we will go. The cloud. That's not the only cloud. There are other clouds. I'm going to give one more and then we're going to quit. The other cloud is found in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I better, I better find it and read it. My favorite book, and I'm even starting to forget. That is just terrible. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the course that has been set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, looking down on the shame, and he sat down, Psalm 2, at the right hand of the throne of God. What is this cloud of witnesses? Well, it could just be a metaphor that, you know, I've gone through all these witnesses, and there's like a cloud around a racetrack, which some people say. They're the fans out there cheering you on. Where does that come from? Not from the Bible. It comes from modern-day America, because what we love are sports to get out there and act crazy, shout and scream and yell, and come to church and act like nothing's going on. We hardly say anything. came to give us a feast of joy and laughter. We should be laughing. The world's dying. We're living. There's a cloud of witnesses. Where are they? They're in that cloud. That cloud. Because above the Ark of the Covenant is this thick cloud in which God dwells. And attached to that are all of his angels whom he can send off to do his work. And in that cloud are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in that cloud is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Jephthah and Samuel and Solomon. They're all there. And so many of them are picked out as examples as that cloud flies by. Be like me. The Feast of Tabernacles. A house for the nations. Why? Because the house in the end doesn't really matter. It's the cloud. Let's stand and pray. Father, when we think of Jesus and we see that in Him is the last sacrifice, no more blood, because His blood is costly, valuable, and all the blood of the Old Testament accomplished nothing in taking away sin, but Jesus has accomplished it for us so that we can join him in the cloud. And I pray, Father, that we would find that blood valuable and the covenant that attaches us to that blood the covenant that attaches us to him, we would find that valuable. And we would reassess and discover and think and wonder, do I keep the vows I made to Jesus? This we pray in Christ's name.